Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. Back in the early stages of my career, when I was working as a vintage clothing buyer, I went back to university to study for a master's degree in the history and culture of fashion. I grew up by the sea, and I was always obsessed with how seafaring has impacted the way that we dress, and so I focused on 19th century swimwear for my dissertation, and I looked at the influence of sailor uniforms on design at the time. This research formed the kernel for what would eventually become my nautical chic book, which was published by Thames and Hudson in 2015, and it explored how the sea has influenced our wardrobes. This week's guest shares very similar interests. Christina Johnson is Associate Curator at the Fidham Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in California. She is co-curator of the excellent exhibition Sporting Fashion, Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960, along with Fidham curator Kevin Jones, and she's the co-author of the accompanying publication. So stay tuned as we discuss the history of swimwear and we chat through some of the ensembles in the exhibition, from 18th century sea bathing to the seaside becoming a fashionable space in the mid-19th century and then the modernist designs of the 1920s. You can head to my Instagram at Amber Butchart to see some of the pieces we discuss. We also consider California swim culture, Swimming in hot mountain springs in the Sequoia National Forest sounds so dreamy. And why we should most definitely bring back the beach cape. Now, I absolutely love this exhibition catalogue. I really can't wait to see the show in person. I'm so looking forward to hearing about the touring schedule so I can work out a trip to come and see it. But before we get onto this exhibition itself, I want to hear more about the museum. So could you tell me a bit about the Fidham Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising? Like, when was it set up? The Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising is our parent organization, and the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising is also known as FIDM, or FIDM for short, hence our name, the FIDM Museum. FIDM, the college, was founded in downtown LA in 1969, and our museum was unofficially founded by instructors. Literally, we started as a closet, and instructors would deposit their cast-off vintage clothing or designer clothing into it so that our students could have hands-on access access to construction and fashion history. The current college moved to our present location in 1990, and that's when the museum got a real storage environment and a real gallery space. Museum trained staff were hired around the year 2000. Before that, the collection was actually cared for by librarians. So the museum trained staff was was hired, and we started building up the collection. Well, I say we, I wasn't there yet. I started in 2003. 
so 18 years this year. Uh, today we're very well known for our annual Art of Motion Picture Costume Design Exhibition, which is a loaned exhibition celebrating costume design in the previous year's films. Our collection, the museum's collection, dates from the 18th century to the present. We have clothing and accessories and a special collection, so things like photographs and magazines and fashion plates. Now how did the idea for the sporting fashion Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960 show come about? Well, I need to acknowledge that my co-curator of the exhibition, Kevin Jones, is not here sitting next to me. And Kevin is curator of the Fitta Museum. I am associate curator. And it was really his idea. About 15 years ago, he started looking at 19th and early 20th century period imagery of females engaged in sport. And he started thinking, well, we started thinking, does this stuff still exist? Does this wardrobe still exist? And we started thinking about it and uh, making inquiries and talking to dealers. And it was in 2009 when we acquired the Outdoor Girl Scarf, which is the end papers of the catalog, that the project really coalesced. And the Outdoor Girl Scarf is a British scarf dating to about 1946 by the company Courtier. It's really big. It's two and a half feet by two and a half feet square. I don't know what that is in metric units, but just know that it's very large. It has a bold red stripe around it, and inside is um, almost like a hand-drawn effect of girls, of females, engaging in all these different sports from canoeing to walking to playing with a ball to swimming. And we were really inspired by that. We found it to be a very energetic piece, a very joyous piece, and that's when we thought, okay, we have to do this show. I absolutely love it because it's an area of history and an area of dress history that we just don't get to see very often. And I think we tend to have this vision of the past, of women in the past especially, and especially sort of middle class women, as being somehow very genteel, never moving, you're, you know, you're stuck in a corset and you can't breathe and you can't move. But this just really shows the reality of women's lives and shows that that's not the case, that women were moving, that they could run in corsets and you know that there was this kind of active uh, well sporting engagement going on I love it my favorite section of course is the making waves section which is all about swimming and so what I really want to talk to you about is the history of swimwear and especially some of the fantastic ensembles that you're featuring in the exhibition and also in the catalogue for those of us who can't get to see the show so I wanted to start with asking you about one of the earliest bathing ensembles, ensembles that you have here. It's from parts of it from the late 18th century, parts of it from the early 19th century. And I wanted to start with this because the town I live in, I live at the seaside in the UK, and it's a town that became quite famous in the 18th century because of sea bathing. And there's evidence in the town that dates back to the 1730s in terms of the sea bathing that was set up here and actual constructed spaces for people to come and go sea bathing. And it was all to do with health and hygiene and ideas around, ideas around that, which were beginning to circulate and which grew throughout the 18th century. This idea of sea bathing is something that was very healthy. So could you please talk me through this particular ensemble and those links to health and hygiene. 
Yes, it's certainly a fascinating time, the 18th century, for sea bathing. Uh, females have been active in the water for thousands of years, but it's really in the 18th century that we see this codification of sea bathing etiquette, uh, whom you could bathe with, at what times, what were the most famous resorts, and most importantly, what was appropriate to wear. And for this very early bathing ensemble, I'll try and describe it. So everyone, fashion is a very visual medium, so I'm going to try and do my best to describe this. We have a mannequin that is wearing what is called a shift or, sh or a chemise, and it's a linen garment. And this would have been worn similar styles um, as undergarments as well. And essentially, it's like a really big oversized t-shirt that reaches the ankles. That was the main bathing garment. The mannequin also has a bonnet on her head, which with a very wide brim made out of straw with a cotton back as well as a cotton bavelet, which are curtains that would shield the neck. She also has on very small bathing slippers to protect the feet from sand and from rocky terrain. I absolutely love that because I have bathing shoes that I wear, sea shoes that I wear when I go swimming in the sea here. And what do they look like? <laughs> they're not quite this dainty, but they're not a million miles away, to be honest. Mine are leopard print <laughs> and they have a kind of rubber sole that's almost a bit like a very thin cycle tyre, I suppose. So it gives you a little bit of, you know, it has a bit of tread in it as well because it gets quite slippery. Um, in the tidal pool that I swim in. But they're not that dissimilar. Mine certainly aren't this elegant, but I love the history of bathing sheets. It's so fantastic. Speaking of the 18th century, you also feature this fantastic quote from the novelist Fanny Burney, which I just wanted to consider as well, because it was written in 1773, but it genuinely could have been written by pretty much anyone I know who swims in the sea with me every day here in Margate. She wrote, Today, for the first time I bathed, I was terribly frightened and really thought I should never have recovered from the plunge. I had not breath enough to speak for a minute or two. The shock was beyond expression great. But after I got back to the bathing machine, I presently felt myself in a glow that was delightful. It is the finest feeling in the world and will induce me to bathe as often as will be safe. I just absolutely love that because, you know, especially if you swim here, you know, I'm unfortunately not in California. <laughs> I'm on the east coast of the UK and if we're swimming during the winter, it's really cold. But it's always that. It's the plunge. It's terrifying. And then you get this delightful glow. So I absolutely loved that from Fanny Burney. I love that description of the after effect and the glow and this concept, these, these buzzwords we have today of wellness and self-care, that is not a new concept. And there were many medical treatises being written, being published that expounded on the benefits of sea bathing and bathing in natural springs. So this is nothing, this is nothing new, this, this interest in bathing and swimming today and the after effects and the health benefits. Absolutely. Where were you doing your research? Um, this show must have been you know it's, as you said it's a very long time in the making how were you conducting the research for the show this was very much an object-led research project, and we came up with the major sporting and activity themes we wanted to cover, and then we literally made a wish list of objects. So not only the main body garments, but the accessories, because every single thing in this exhibition is vintage or antique. There are no reproductions. And so once we felt comfortable and confident that we had the makings of an entire outfit, we would start researching. And thank goodness so much is digitized today. There are magazines and books and 
diaries and all it takes is the right combination of keywords and you can find success in what what you need to find <laughs> yeah you don't have to go around the world to all these different libraries when things are digitized and that's really what we depended on i spent hours not only in my office but also on my couch at home just trying to find those period quotes to enliven these ensembles and to to help our understanding um, of them i actually love the literary element that runs through the catalogue as well I just read out the Fanny Burney quote, but there's also Jane Austen. You know, it's really just drawing from all over the place and it really does bring it to life. Now, the next ensemble I wanted to talk to you about is from a little bit later. It's into the 19th century, around the sort of 1860s. And it's from this point on that we're definitely seeing the seaside really becoming a fashionable space, something that sort of begins in the 18th century. And by this point, it's, you know, it's becoming quite established as a place to see and be seen. So could you tell me a bit about what was being worn and especially with relation to this particular ensemble, which I also am in love with and also more bathing shoes? Yes, we're both looking at a page in the catalogue that represents bathing from the 1860s. And she wears this one piece, somewhat loose ensemble with attached pants, which would have been very risque. Uh, pants were really not taken up by Western females until the 19th. 1920s and 1930s, unless you were at the seaside. The ensemble itself has dagging or triangular shaped serrated trim all over it, on the neckline, on the rolled up sleeves, on the cuffs of the pants, and on that serrated edging is this wonderful, brilliant red wool braid. And so it looks very much like fashion plates of the era when you open up Godey's Ladies Books or one of those magazines and you see dresses with the same trim. And I do do think that the proliferation of fashion periodicals at this time introduced consumers to new products, swimwear and bathing wear, that they didn't know they needed. So this is all about the commercialization, the commodification of sea bathing. And going along with that, there is a commodification of the actual area where you are bathing in. You have hotels and restaurants and theaters and boardwalks, and it becomes this destination, this experience that you can uh, just have a great time in, whether you you are swimming or whether you are water adjacent. Our 1860s bathing outdoor girl also has a number of accessories, starting with her head. She has a straw hat shaped as a bell with a wide black ribbon tied over it. And underneath her chignon, she has a wide black belt with some silver buckles on it, a parasol with black silk, and her bathing espadrilles. And these espadrilles have blue ribbons that lace up the ankle. And on the bottom, the soles, those are made out of rope. Espadrilles are my favorite shoes like hands down bar none I am absolutely in love with espadrilles really really love espadrilles and have done since I was tiny and I remember my mum having a pair of espadrilles and I just thought they were the most glamorous thing of all time and now it's the only shoes that I wear during the summer absolutely beautiful and you do mention uh, in the catalogue as well that at this point women could be wearing bathing corsets is that something that you featured in the show as well? We were not able to find a mid-19th century bathing corset, unfortunately. It was on our wish list. And a bathing corset would be a little different than a regular day wear or evening wear corset in that it would not include metal because that, of course, would rust. Instead, they would generally be um, have baling inserted and perhaps would be made out of mesh, would maybe even feature rubber later on in the 19th century. And this was not about whittling down a waist. It was really about support, bodily support in the water, and still making sure that, that 
that outdoor girl had the ideal silhouette, a smooth silhouette. So let me know if you ever find a bathing corset because I would like it for the Fitham Museum. <laughs> <laughs> I will certainly let you know. I think that's such an important point to make as well, because I think a lot of people today assume that corsetry of the past, especially the mid-19th century, was this really torturous, um, you know, constrictive, horrendous thing to wear. But like you say, a lot of the time it was worn for support. Working women wore corsets and worked in them. It was essentially the equivalent of the bra today, but just, you know, a bit bigger. And it's not that everybody was, you know, lacing their waists down to try to get them to 14 inches or something it was much more workable than that wasn't it it was and i think today our conceptions of fit of how clothes fit is much different than in the mid 19th century we're used to loose clothing and knitwear and things that skim the body but for high fashion uh, in the 19th century that would have been a much tighter fit tighter under the arm size at the waist so just different conceptions of poise of physicality um, and of fashion now, one of the other items that you feature in the catalogue and show, which I'm obsessed with, is a bathing tent. Um, and it comes with bathing boots as well. And I will put a picture of this up on my Instagram, if that's OK, because I just absolutely love it. And I want other people to see this because <laughs> it's so fantastic. Could you describe the bathing tent to me and uh, tell me what it's for? Yes, when Kevin put a cabine de déshabillage, which is French for a personal bathing tent, on our wish list, I thought, good luck. We are never going to find one. I've, I've seen them in imagery, but good luck, because they were meant to be used and worn up. So I will attempt to describe it. Our a personal bathing tent is made out of white flannel. And just imagine a mass of white around this woman. It has a high standing collar, and there is a metal wheel that descends from the shoulders to the bust line, but creates a huge amount of negative space around her. And then the bottom portion of the personal bathing tent descends down. So you have this like personal tent all the way around you. There is a little tiny bit of trim, some blue chenille trim. So essentially you would put this on, you would have your wet bathing suit on and you could change you could change your clothes on the beach. You did not have to go to the boardwalk or to a tent or to, to the club. You could change right there on the beach. And then with one hook and eye, which is located at the center front of the neck, the whole thing would poof, drop all the way to the ground. It was very convenient. I have a great quote about uh, the importance of perhaps not being seen in a wet bathing suit at this time. Quote, the cynic may here insinuate that the emergence from the waves cannot, from the necessities of the case, be so graceful or dignified as was the descent. And truth compels us to admit that dry clothes do make a difference. So you wanted to be seen in your dry clothes. You wanted to be seen in the sea. You wanted to be seen going to the sea. Deportment was still important. And wet bathing suits did reveal a great deal of the body. I love that so much. And I love it for two reasons. Firstly, because because I have a changing poncho that I wear every time I swim in the sea. It is not quite as elaborate as this changing bathing tent here, but it's this exactly the same concept. And over this last winter, we actually had in the in the press here in the UK, there were a lot of articles about this item called the dry robe, which, which is essentially the winter version of the sort of change robe. So it's very heavy and it's windproof and it's waterproof. The idea is you can get changed inside it. And it became very contentious because we've had so many 
many people taking up outdoor swimming over the pandemic here in the UK that it became a sort of symbol of these new people who had taken this up and it was, you know, became this sort of ridiculous argument in the press about people with these dry robes and wearing them when they shouldn't be wearing them. So I love it firstly for that reason, but also I love it because of the idea that you can pull something and it just falls down like you're a magician's assistant or a showgirl or something. It's just fantastic, that reveal. I love it. Well, next, I wanted to skip forward in time a little bit to another of my favourite eras for considering swimming history and swimwear in particular, and that is the 1920s. Really important era, uh, you know, the 1910s and the 1920s, very important, I think, in terms of swimwear design, the evolution of swimwear and the idea of swimming as well. And what you have here is a Janssen swimsuit, which is just wonderful. Could you talk me through this piece? Yes, the mannequin wears this black Janssen swimsuit, which is much different than the bathing attire that we've seen previously. And honestly, this is when bathing, submerging, or dunking in the water changes to swimming, which is active ambulation in the water. So it's much sleeker. Essentially, it looks like a black tank top that is stretched down a little bit. And underneath, she has little shorts on, but there's this little modesty panel where the legs join. On this black tank top, this wool knit black tank top, there is the famous patch of the Janssen diving girl, which was Janssen's branding. And she's swooping down, diving down into the water. She wears a red swim cap and a red bathing suit. And she typifies this new physical ideal for females. She is uh, slender, she is boyish, she is active. So you're wearing this swimsuit and you have this this icon that, that you are trying to aspire to. Janssen is very interesting because it is a company that was based in Portland, Oregon, and I believe it is still uh, active. And it started, like many swimwear manufacturers in the 20th century, as a knitwear company, manufacturing sweaters, manufacturing long under And as females uh, started to become more active in the water, they needed swimwear to support that activity. So you start seeing these knit swimsuits that are really, really brief. At no time have females shown as much skin as with these types of uh, swimsuits. Sometimes the swimsuits even featured very low backs or portholes, basically holes on the sides of the swimsuit. So suddenly a fashionable tan was really all the rage, even when you were wearing an evening gown. You could showcase your tan lines from wearing these brief avant-garde swimsuits. Our bathing, excuse me, our swimming, our swimming girl also has a black rubber cap to keep her marcelled waves in check and some wonderful black and white graphic rubber swimming shoes. And those swimming shoes are actually genuinely very similar to my swimming shoes. Well, I love them. See, good design is good design no matter the era. I just love that it just encapsulates this notion that, uh, you know, being outdoors and being active are coming, becoming very fashionable, becoming very accepted and encouraged for women. And also this idea of streamlined design. You've really got this idea of sort of modernist design, modernist aesthetics coming in through this ensemble. Yes, very pared down. There are no ruffles. There are no bloomers. This is the bare minimum. Now, there are a couple of designs in the catalogue by Cole of California, which when I worked as a buyer for a vintage clothing company, you know, Janssen, Cole of California, these are the real 
premium mid-century swim brands that you're looking for. These are just very desirable for vintage collectors. And the pieces you've got here are by Margit Felagy, who was with Coal of California for a long time and created some absolutely spectacular designs for them, including the swoon suit, which I would love you to talk us through. The swoon suit was one of Margit Felagy's most famous designs for Coal of California, and I'm going to attempt to describe it. Our version is a two-piece suit. It's made out of peach material, and it's a halter-style top with a lot of shearing, a lot of gathering at the bust, and a small bow. The shorts also feature shearing at the abdomen, but what's most unique about this is that it has a void going up the center of each side leg, and there's a lace-up effect with nylon braid. This was first introduced in 1942, although it was a popular design for the ensuing uh, few years. And it was designed to not make use of a lot of fabric and also to not include elastic because there were wartime and post-war restrictions on design. This was such a popular design. You see it everywhere. You see it in magazines. You see it on the cover of Ebony magazine. We also have a photo of it in the very beginning of the catalog, one of four gorgeous women from the 1940s on the beach wearing the swoon suit. And also, I have a lot of family photos and I was going through them and I kid you not, I found a photo of my aunt in Santa Monica, California, where I grew up, which is a beach town, wearing a swoon suit. No way. I am not kidding. It was very exciting. So you can see just how popular this style was. That's incredible. That's so incredible. And the swoon suit is such an important piece of social history because you've got these wartime restrictions making it incredibly skimpy, which just becomes very sort of emblematic, I suppose, of that California lifestyle. That idea that swimwear is getting skimpier, but then also this link to the wartime restrictions, making it skimpier. It's, yeah, it's just so fascinating. There's so much in there. Yes, she definitely looks like a wartime pinup with that peekaboo effect on each leg, but it's something that you could actually go in the water in. And from the looks of surviving visual imagery, lots and lots of women found this to be a really attractive suit. The whole brand, Coal of California, I think, is fantastic. And especially at this point, the early 1940s. And before that, you've got an earlier, a 1930s Coal of California piece. You know, at this time, Hollywood, California is really becoming more fashionable than a lot of European resorts due to, of course, the film industry. And it's just so incredibly redolent of that particular sort of, like you say, the pinups and that era of film stars as well. I love it. Yes, Fred Cole inherited his family company in the 1920s and renamed it Cole of California. He had been an actor, and so he transitioned this, what had been a knitwear company, into this very glamorous swimsuit company. And he was very astute because he approached actresses, uh, including Esther Williams, to model the swimsuits to be in advertising campaigns. So, for example, when she was in uh, Million Dollar Mermaid in 1952, there was a product tie-in with Coal of California, this bright gold swimsuit, which we do have. It didn't make it in the exhibition, but we do have it. So there are definitely celebrity tie-ins to all of this, especially with Coal of California.
California. Cole of California also produced a line of swimwear for Dior. Uh, so just a really wonderful and fun company that transitioned swimwear back into bathing maybe because I don't know how you would wear some of these swimsuits that were gold or bedazzled in the water. I love that he was an actor as well. That's just the most California thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's got it all in there. It's so great. Now, what's your favorite item of swimwear that's, that features in the show? My favorite item of swimwear uh, is also from the 1950s, and it is by a company called Catalina, which is a Southern California-based company, and it's named after an island just off the coast of Southern California that's this great place for recreation. Lots of celebrities would go there during the 1940s and 50s. There's this great modern casino. So taking that lifestyle into effect for the branding of the Catalina image. My favorite bathing suit is made out of blue periwinkle blue velveteen and it is a halter style it features a very uh, robust bust line and it is bedazzled with faux pearls and rhinestones all over it and there is a matching little skull cap with a little bit of fabric falling behind and of course our mannequin wears sunglasses that are studded with rhinestones and I love the connection to Hollywood this is a girl who was waiting to be discovered it is it is not appropriate for getting wet, but I think it does reflect on this importance of perhaps not the activity of swimming in LA and Southern California, but the fantasy of it. It is a stunning piece, a really stunning ensemble. And, you know, remarkable that it's velveteen. Like you say, you just can't imagine somebody actually getting into the water in that. My favourite piece in the show is a piece that I have shared on Instagram in the past, and I'm sure I will share it again. So I won't dwell on it for too long, but I will say that it's from the 1930s. It's a two-piece, and it has an anchor on it, and it comes with a matching beach cape. Beach Cape. If anybody is listening to this that manufactures swimwear, please could we bring back the Beach Cape? I would love that so much. Yes, I love that piece. It features chenille or candle wicking. There was a huge resurgence of that type of material in the southern states in the 1930s. And bedspreads were also made out of the same fabric. Uh, it's just a wonderful design that also features an anchor. So where will the exhibition be traveling to? The exhibition currently is at the Frick Museum in Pittsburgh, and it will be open through late September. And then it travels to a number of other venues. I'm going to list them out. The Dixon Gallery in Memphis, the Figgy Art Museum in Iowa, the Munson Williams Proctor in upstate New York, and the Taft Museum in Ohio, as well as the Kummer Museum in Florida. And then in summer of 2024, we are going to be hosting it uh, here at the LA Fitta Museum Galleries. Now, when it's traveling, the exhibition is about 60 different ensembles plus accessories and framed art. But the entire exhibition, the exhibition that we envision, is over a hundred ensembles. So summer of 2024, that is definitely going to be the summer for taking a trip to sunny Southern California. I'm booking my trip immediately. Good. Probably not, probably not immediately, to be fair with everything that's happening. But I will be there. I will absolutely come. Oh, I'm so it. glad. <laughs> now, the swimwear that you've got in the show, is that all found in the FIDM collection? Yes, all of the clothing and accessories in the exhibition are from the FITA Museum's own collection. And in terms of swimwear, we had a difficult time choosing what to feature and what to acquire, what to purchase. We have an extensive swimwear collection, which makes sense. So there's a lot of pieces that we would like to feature in another project. 
well, please let me work on that project with you. I would <laughs> love that. that. You are the perfect person <laughs> for it. And we have more nautical-inspired pieces, so I think it's perfect for you. You have to. You need to book that ticket. Now, as well as swimwear, the exhibition also features a number of pieces of, uh, you know, clothing worn for yachting and also beachwear as well. What's your favorite item of beachwear that features in the show? One of my favorite pieces is a red and white sweater by Jean Patou, who was very well known uh, for couture in the 1920s and also did sportswear. And this was the perfect piece to wear somewhere like the Lido or Biarritz. And we paired it with a pair of white woolen slacks from. Henri à la Pensée, which was a famous department store in Paris. And I think she looks so incredibly chic. And I swear, although the ensemble is from like circa 1930, late 1920s, you could wear it today and be, be contemporary. And where can people find out more about Fidham Museum and the exhibition? The Fitta Museum is active on social media. We have an Instagram account, at Fitta Museum, Twitter, Facebook. We have a newly designed website, www.fittamuseum.org. You can stay in touch with where the exhibition is going and our different activities by logging on there. You can also stay on top of the exhibition schedule by going to the American Federation of Arts website. And the American Federation of Arts is a nonprofit institution based in New York, and they helped us with the traveling portion of the exhibition. They're a great company that originates a lot of exhibitions and helps institutions with their own. Now, what's your relationship with swimming? Well, when you sent me these questions, I had to reflect for a bit. But one of my earliest memories is actually learning how to swim as a two-year-old or three-year-old with my mom. And I had a great time. I remember the bathing suit she wore. It was a black one-piece with lots of bright polka dots all over it. And we were taking a mommy and me class at an indoor pool. And I remember feeling really happy and gleeful in the water and it's really because of her that I feel comfortable in the water. I spent summers at my parents cabin in the Sequoia National Forest and it was built around a resort, a hot springs resort and there's an outdoor pool so we would spend these summers in the pool. The The water is 125 degrees coming out of the mountain so it needed to be cooled down before it went into the pool and she would devise all of these games for me like jump in the pool and find the penny that I put there or dive in or swim the length and I would earn points like these imaginary points that my mom determined was the correct amount for each uh, skill set I learned and then I would be able to redeem those points for a toy and I would usually choose a Barbie doll but it's really I feel very comfortable swimming in the water because of her and I'm, I'm super grateful for that. I love her teaching methods. That's incredible. That's amazing. And also, obviously, the hot springs. That just sounds absolutely dreamy. It's really special water. There's lots of minerals in it. It's warm. It feels great. And even now, I'll go up and go swimming in the snow. And so you see all of the steam coming off of the water. And it's great because unlike the, the beaches where you are, which are really cold, it's still warm. <laughs> Don't be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing of like swimming in warm water when, it's, when you're outside and it's cold, that's probably my favorite thing ever it's something living in the UK I don't get to do very much at all but it's just so wonderful when you can see the steam coming off the water I just absolutely love it so yeah I'm incredibly envious that sounds amazing where's your favorite place that you've ever swum? Well, I would have to say in the hot springs pool at the cabin, it holds so many memories, just so many memories. Yeah. That's 
so fully understandable. If I'd ever swum there, I think it would probably be my favorite place to swim as well. More recently, I enjoy walking by the beach. Uh, I did grow up in Santa Monica. My whole family's there. I grew up about two miles from the beach, and I really didn't swim all that much, but I do enjoy walking along the edge of the beach. I spent hours and hours walking with my grandma, who's no longer with us, but it's our, our special place. It's a place I can go back to and remember the conversations we had and be calmed by the waves coming in and smell the sea air and see the seagulls. So although I'm not actively taking the plunge, although I do like boogie boarding on the weekends, uh, I just, I love going to the beach in Santa Monica, my hometown. Where's top of your list of places to swim that you haven't yet swum? I would like to go to a white sand beach with crystal clear turquoise water, maybe Maui or Tahiti, and experience that and swim in a tide pool there and just kind of lounge and float and and enjoy that water. Gorgeous. I have visited Maui actually quite a long time ago now. I think it was 2004 or maybe very early 2005 on a family trip. I went with my brother and we stayed in Maui and we did snorkeling and we did whale watching as well and it was just amazing i've never it's the only place i've ever done snorkeling quite like that where you know everything's really incredibly bright and it's just colors in the water magical how important do you think that swimming is to california culture you know we all associate especially us in the uk you think of california you think of california girls you think of beach culture how is it growing up in California. The museum is obviously in California. What's the place of swimming in in the culture? I think that the fantasy of swimming as depicted through magazines and film and also the sportswear ready-to-wear industry is more important to Southern California than the actual act of swimming, if that makes sense. Our project stopped in 1960, and that's because Most of the elements of sportswear as we know it today were determined, were finished, and what was new was technologically advanced fibers. So that was not for us to do, that's for another organization, another institution to do. But what we missed out on was the surf culture of the 1960s, and that was absolutely important and swimming pertaining to the the surf culture. So you have groups like the Beach Boys or the Gidget Films, and this was part of growing up. You know, my dad, my uncles tell me that they basically lived on the beach. They cut class, they went down to the beach with their boards and and that's where they lived it's just that's what you did can you surf I have always wanted to learn to surf, but I have to tell you that there are some sharks in the waters and there's been more and more reports of sharks. So it's a little disconcerting. However, I still want to learn and I think it's totally safe, but my family and my coworkers, even Kevin has said, no, I don't want you surfing right now, but I promise I will learn to surf. There are some wonderful women-led companies that can teach you how to surf and I swear I am going to do it. I am going to stand on that board and then I'm going to fall in and I'm going to swim to shore. No problem. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow, I, I just can't imagine being, you know, living near a, a beach, living near a coast that has sharks. Like I get scared just from the jellyfish we have in the water here. And the jellyfish aren't even that bad. Apparently the sting isn't, you can't you can't even really feel it, you know, but I'm just like, no, so the idea of sharks is just terrifying, really terrifying. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to Christina for being such a knowledgeable and brilliant guest. 
Head to the episode details to find links to the Fidder Museum and American Federation of Arts sporting fashion touring show and also the fantastic catalogue, which I really love. You can also head to my Instagram page at Amber Butch Art to see pictures of the ensembles discussed and also to find out more about future guests. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. See you next time on Making a Splash.